From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, the state legislature convenes in session just three weeks from now. How serious are GOP leaders about calling for a full expansion of Medicaid? I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington, where the Senate is still in session, holding out for a possible deal on tougher border security measures, which also could be coupled with new funding for Ukraine and maybe also Israel. A federal jury ruled that Rudolph Giuliani should pay Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman an eye-popping $148 million for repeatedly claiming the two Fulton County election workers tried to rig the results of the 2020 election. The absurdity of the number merely underscores the absurdity of the entire proceeding. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach, Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us out there as we begin another week on our show, the week before Christmas. Um, Tia Mitchell is with us, of course, as she is on uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And Tia, you're back in Washington after a week here where we loved having you with us. You're back at your beat in D.C. Yes, back in my closet, but also back in my um, own bed. So not complaining. Yeah, that's good. Um, We should tell uh, people that, you know, we use Zoom to see each other uh, as we're doing uh, our shows. And, T, we always get a great view of the shoes uh, in your shoe rack behind you in the yeah. closet. <laughs> it's a quite a collection, I have to say. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is with us. Uh, she represents Decatur and surrounding areas. Mary Margaret, I don't think I've ever, in introducing you on the show before, pointed out um, what many people already know who followed your career. You... Um, served in the state Senate, then came and served over in the House. I think you're the only uh, legislator who served as the Judiciary Committee chair in both bodies. Is that correct? That's true. It's kind of an odd career back and forth. Both David Ralston and I moved from the Senate back to the House. He did a little better in the House than I did, but I enjoyed both chambers and have strong opinions about the differences between them. I'm looking forward to talking to you um, and getting your take on this notion that we might see a full expansion of Medicaid in the upcoming session, and we'll get to that in a minute. But let's introduce Brian Robinson. Brian Robinson's doing double duty for WABE today. Brian, we're happy that (laughs) you're with us for Politically Georgia, but pretty quickly after we uh, end our show, you're going to be doing another edition of uh, Political Breakfast the show you do with Lisa Rayum and Theron Johnson. But That's thank right. you for taking time to be with, with us. We should we're also we're, go ahead. We're trying, to, we're trying to squeeze in some extra end of year shows uh, so that people have something to do on their walks after Christmas 
we want them to have that in their podcast feed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let, let's also point out, Brian, that you have a pretty significant career in elective politics. You worked for uh, Congressman Lynn Westmoreland in Washington. Um, Lynn was, of course, just on our show last week. Um, and you also served as communications director for Governor Nathan Deal in his first term. Um, yep. The title was communications director, um, but um, many people said what you really were was Nathan Deal's attack dog. <laughs> and I think it was, that's a fair description. <laughs> it sure was, man. We, you know, people people forget now because he left office with very high approval ratings and was kind of a beloved, uh, you know, grandfatherly figure, but. We had a rough go of it those first couple of years, and so we needed somebody to scrape and claw for, for a while, and I was happy to do it. And and you joined Nathan Deal when he was one of the lowest polling candidates uh, in the gubernatorial race of 2010, and uh, yet he became a very successful two-term governor of Georgia. All right, let's get right to this conversation about Medicaid expansion. Tia, I think all of us were surprised, journalists Representatives like Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, political consultants like uh, Brian Robinson, when we learned a few weeks ago that leaders in the House and Senate, for the first time, are actually looking at a full expansion of Medicaid. And by leaders, of course, I'm talking about the Republican leadership. Yeah, I think it is interesting that it's on the table. Of course, it would be coupled with something that conservatives have been pushing for, which is ending the certificate of need process that is kind of dependent on where you stand. Either it helps ensure hospitals are a high quality or it limits competition between, um, it limits new hospitals from opening up to compete with existing hospitals. Um, so it's a very contentious political issue, certificate of need. Um, and so I do think it's interesting that it's being coupled with Medicaid expansion. Um, our listeners might know that, you know, before I came to the AJC, most of my career was in Florida. Florida is another state that both has certificate of need. It's been a big political football and Florida also has not expanded Medicaid. So I've covered these issues a lot separately from a Florida perspective. It's interesting to see it play out now in Georgia. Mary Margaret, um, of course, as a Democratic uh, member of the House, you for a long time have uh, called for the full expansion of Medicaid. How surprised are you that it now appears to actually be on the table for the 2024 session? I'm not surprised because this has been a discussion going on in the back room for a while. In fact, at the first CON study committee hearing, that CON study is chaired by Butch Parrish from down in Swainsboro, Georgia. CON meaning certificate of need. Certificate of need, which is controversial for 50 years. It was mandated by the federal government in the 70s and then uh, the health planning process bureaucracy, if you will, to grant certain permits for expansion of healthcare services, hospitals particularly. But Butch Parrish is also chair of the Medicaid Subcommittee of Appropriations. And like other Republican leaders in the House, uh, Appropriations Chair Hatchett and uh, Speaker Burns, they are from rural Southeast Georgia. 
uh, Senate Appropriations Chair Blank Tillery is also from rural southeast Georgia. These gentlemen understand that money is uh, not available uh, and that their health care system is not in great shape. Georgia is one of uh, 10, 11 states that have an expanded Medicaid. We have a second or third highest rate of uninsured Georgians, uh, just under 500,000. When you compare the business industry of health care, the job expansion, the jobs, the infusion of money into an economy to Rivian or to the auto industry, Georgia's economic development, if you looked at it purely in terms of economic development, the $3 billion annual uh, infusion of money into our health care system uh, would create 25,000 plus jobs, more than Rivian, more than perhaps these new electric car folks are contributing. And it also obviously would help uh, improve the health and welfare of Georgians. We're in a tough spot right now with this Medicaid re-eligibility that comes after COVID. Uh, we are about to take hundreds of thousands. This is not known figure. We have a year to reevaluate Medicaid eligibility for the 2.5 million on Medicaid today, most of whom are children, of course, over half, way over half are children. So we're, we're going in engaging in a process right now to cut people off Medicaid based on the end of the COVID rules. <clears throat> so this is a perfect time to lift up the discussion about CON versus uh, in exchange for repeal, modify significantly certificate of need in exchange for expansion of Medicaid. The, this is a weedy discussion, and I'm happy always to go into the weeds, but I do choose to be help, hopeful that this discussion is going, it already is in the public, led again by the Certificate of Need Butch Parish's committee, who brought folks in from Arkansas to look at the way in which they've done it. Yeah, I want to talk about Arkansas, which is apparently the model that uh, Georgia legislators are looking at. We'll get to that in a minute. But Brian, before we do, um, just quickly, Republicans have long opposed full expansion of Medicaid in Georgia, mm-hmm. largely because although when you sign up, when you get when you do expand Medicaid to all who are eligible, um, the federal government picks up uh, most of the tab. And in fact, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, um, that percentage of federal money went up at one point to 95 percent. It's now at 90 percent. But the Republican argument has often been in the long run, we don't know if federal money is sustainable and states are going to end up down the road having to pay these costs. Yeah. And I think that's still a legitimate fear. I don't think we can take that off the table. But here's where the conversation, I think, really changed, Bill. I don't think that part of it has changed. What has changed is that when Governor Deal was in office, and Governor Deal, let's remember, was the healthcare policy expert. Mm-hmm. He was the ranking member on energy and commerce in the U.S. House when Obamacare was passed. I mean, this guy knows his stuff. And he had a fundamental – it wasn't a pragmatic uh, thought. It was a fundamental an ideological thought that Medicaid was not for adults who were able-bodied. And he just, he, he would not get past that. That was his hard line. So Georgia was very much not in line to get it as long as he was governor. But to me, the argument changed on the day when John McCain turned his thumb upside down and repeal and replace 
no longer was an option. So it was a legitimate argument to wait for the replace because let's not let's not spend all this money, get all these folks on the rolls if this is going to go away. Well, since that day, early in Trump's term, that has not really been a possibility. So this is the American system. We need to live within the system or we will be penalized. And right now we're being penalized for living outside of the American system. So I have been a bit of a, uh, you know, maybe a maverick, speaking of John McCain, for saying for some time now that we should just bite the bullet and do it. It doesn't mean we love Obamacare. It doesn't mean we've changed our opinion on the impact on the federal debt. I still have those concerns. But as long as this is the American law, we are sitting outside of the bar on the other side of the velvet rope. And most other Americans are inside the bar drinking and we're paying the tap. And we're we're out here in the cold, not drinking, but paying the tap. So that's kind of how I see it. So as long as this is the law, let's do it. Bring in those billions of dollars that Mary Margaret was talking about and save rural health care. One interesting fact, I do some, I do some hospital work bill. So I know a little bit more about this than I should as a, as a regular person, but for people who are uncovered, the hospitals get five cents on the dollar for cost of care for people who have Medicaid, they get 80 cents mm-hmm. on the dollar. So it's still not perfect, right? They're still not getting exactly the cost of care, but there's a 75 cent difference, and that can mean the difference in a hospital in southeast, southwest rural Georgia or northeast, northwest Georgia staying open. And that's critical to economic development in those regions. No business is going to go to a place where there's not a local hospital. Yeah, I was going to say in Representative Oliver, you can weigh in. Again, going back to my Florida experience, which was when Obamacare was first being signed into law and states were having to make the decision, were they going to expand Medicaid? And I remember looking back and when Medicaid, the original Medicaid was signed into law, states in the South were very hesitant. So this was not Medicaid expansion. This was Medicaid, period. And states still had to do it. And you saw states one by one by one. And eventually, every state did it. Because again, you were missing out on federal dollars. You were seeing other states get the benefits because there are, you know, the health outcomes, the actual benefits of people having health care. So eventually, states like Florida and Georgia did adopt Medicaid, although much later. Do you think the writing's on the wall now for Medicaid expansion, where, again, you're seeing states one by one, the southern states were hesitant to expand Medicaid um, for many reasons. But do you think eventually it will be that whether sooner or later, all states will expand Medicaid, kind of for some of the reasons Brian mentioned? I believe so. And we have uh, the reality that it was always politically popular to say we'll insure, insure children. And most Medicaid recipients are children still. The biggest example of a change that impacts Georgia's thinking is what happened in North Carolina in the last year. Medicaid was a non-expansion state. They lifted up a direct repeal of its CON law in exchange for Medicaid expansion. We are watching North Carolina and we're watching Arkansas. Back to Arkansas. Arkansas has expanded Medicaid. These are southern states, obviously. Tennessee's expanded Medicaid. Kentucky's expanded Medicaid to all of their benefits. 
Arkansas is doing it a little bit differently. It's infusing money into the private insurance market as a methodology to expand Medicaid, which of course is overlaps with Brian Kemp's uh, uh, inadequate and, in my judgment, failing pathways system of expanding Medicaid. Brian, let me ask you: uh, What is Brian? What is Governor Kemp's uh, view on this discussion that's being lifted up by House leadership on CON? Do you have an opinion as to whether or not he's weighing in at this point? I do have an opinion on that, and I think we can look at the context clues to see where the governor stands. Obviously, the governor is very proud of his waiver plan that is sort of a mini expansion and and really helps the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable. I know Democrats disagree very much. But uh, I think the fact that Governor Kemp is not speaking out now, the fact that House leaders, including Speaker Burns, uh, Chairman Parrish, were were at this committee where the Arkansas model was being discussed, it sends a strong signal about where the leadership in the House is on this. And the fact that uh, they're doing that shows that there's been no signal from Governor Kemp, no, I would veto this if it comes to my desk. So they, they're not going to go through this. They're not going to make members take a vote on this unless it's going to get signed on the back end. So I have not been in those conversations. I can speak freely because I, I am not I do not have any inside information. But just looking at the context clues, Governor Kemp would sign this bill or I think he would be telling people behind closed doors, quit talking about this. There's no need in creating a political headache for our members. I tend to agree. I think you're more credible on what the governor may be thinking than I am. I tend to agree. Let me talk about the Senate a second in this very interesting, politically positive view in my judgment. As you know, Lieutenant Governor uh, Burt Jones last year had a complete, you know, public, uh, I won't use the word fit, I won't use the word uh, denial of any progress of mental health reform until, quote, the House repealed CON. And we know the backstory about that, about his father's interest in a rural hospital, Jackson County. We also know over the period of all of, since the federal government removed the mandate of certificate of need processing, um, Georgia is one of the states that's held on to it. And I think over half the, there's a good number of states that have repealed it as they were allowed to do. Our healthcare market has changed so dramatically in my long political career, but certainly since the initiation of CON. Who does it help today? Nobody thinks it helps rural hospitals that teetering. Nobody thinks that. And the big, the big feet people, uh, Emory and Wellstar and Northside and Piedmont, have they already gotten most of what they need in and around C- small CON reforms? CON has been a distraction, in my view, away from really delivering health care. That's my view as of 2023 going into 2024. So I think there are reasons to believe the Senate, the House, and now I'm glad to hear the governor uh, might be interested in a serious, a serious and detailed discussion about money and about the welfare of Georgia's half million folks that don't have health insurance. So um, let's uh, talk about the tale of two waivers as an example of the difference between what happened in Arkansas and what happened in Georgia. Way back in, I think it was 2013, Arkansas applied for a waiver uh, to be able to uh, expand Medicaid um, under a unique system in which all uh, um, 
people of the state who were eligible for Medicaid would do it, would join Medicaid by going on the ACA uh, rolls and actually getting a private insurance plan, which would be paid for by the feds. Um, and, and that has had an enormous impact on Arkansas. Uh, they more than doubled the number of people who have Medicaid as a result of that. This is the model that Georgia seems to be looking at as well. So you're eligible for Medicaid, but instead of getting a direct check, say, from the government, you go and you actually pick a plan from uh, the private ACA or from, pri- from the ACA uh, uh, site uh, to do that. Governor Kemp, on the other hand, Tia, applied for a different kind of Medicaid waiver a couple of years ago, which he finally was able to get during the Biden administration. Um, He wanted to uh, expand Medicaid, but add to it a work or service requirement. Um, So far under that plan, according to uh, figures the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Ariel Hart particularly, has been looking at, they've added about 1,300, 1,400 people to the Medicaid rolls. It doesn't seem to be working particularly well yet. Well, I mean, you can say yet. It's been several months. I know that Governor Kemp's team would say, give it time to ramp up. And true, but at what point do you say this is just, it is what it is. Um, and I, I don't want to make that decision, but I think we should point out it has been several months. So yeah. um, one of the reasons why is it does it doesn't just require have a work requirement. There's like a paperwork requirement that, um, you know, some people have said could be a barrier when you ask people if you're already poor and struggling, um, they might not necessarily be the folks who are going to stay on top of filling out regular reports and things like that, um, that the paperwork itself might be a barrier is one of the things I read. Um, and again, it's even if everyone qualifies, it still would be a fraction of those who would qualify under full Medicaid expansion. Yeah. So even under the best case scenario, it's far short of expansion, but we are far short currently of the best case scenario under the governor's plan. Um, we're going to have to get to a break, but I want to ask a couple of other quick questions. Brian, I'm curious, you in in your, in your uh, first answer to a question, uh, made an interesting comment. You said, we may not like the Affordable Care Act, meaning Republicans, but as long as this is available, we ought to uh, accept the expansion of Medicaid as long as federal money is available. And, and I was sort of interested in that because it seems pretty clear from most of the polling that the American people have finally embraced ACA in a pretty big way. And, and what I'm curious about in terms of your mentioning that is to what extent has this always been beyond the monetary concerns that people say they have to what extent has this simply been part of the partisan warfare you've got donald trump now saying we're going to eliminate aca when i'm president again how much of it has just been a republican fight against 
Democratic big spenders. You know, I think the, the hesitation for Republican legislators, Mary Margaret's colleagues through the years, uh, at least for the five, last five or six years, hasn't been partisan warfare. It's been more fear of a primary electorate that still has this mm-hmm. uh, ongoing opposition to uh, anything that's got Obama in the, the title of it. And but the Americans at large, I think, have moved past that. I wrote I wrote a column in Georgia Trend last year saying Governor Kemp should expand Medicaid in 2022, take the issue off the table and steal that issue from Stacey Abrams because his waiver plan had to pass the General Assembly. Now, it it, it still falls under Obamacare. It's still an expansion of Medicaid, just not a full one. And there was no opposition. There was nobody who got a primary challenge on, on that vote. There was no Republican outcry. There was no remnant of the Tea Party out there raising a stink. What it showed me, and I think showed a lot of Republican legislators, is that the Republican uh, primary electorate has lost its steam on this issue. It, it doesn't have the edge that it had 10 years ago. And yes, we're talking 10 years ago. That's how long we've been having this conversation in, in the state. So I think it's safe to politically for Republicans to do it now. I think that is a change that has happened over time. And I still think there's still going to be a few who are against it. That's fine. But if you pull this in Georgia, it's going to get majority support, meaning a lot of Republicans are going to say they're for it. In red states where it's going to a referendum, it is passed in every one. So you're seeing nationally Republicans have changed their tune on it. Mary Margaret, I got to get to a break, but I'm going to give you just a few seconds for a last word. Predating the uh, animosity, opposition to anything with Obama's name, there was the old conservative view that still exists that able-bodied, as as Brian mentioned for Governor Deal, able-bodied men and women just need to go work and get a better job and get insurance. Uh, That's a conservative view. We don't need to help those folks. They can help themselves. That's not the modern reality of Georgia poor population who is working uh, along with the folks within the sound of my voice on this radio program. We're working. We just earn enough money or get employer insurance. And there are half a million people out there who are working who don't have employer insurance. All right. Uh, This is an issue that we will follow as the legislature begins in just three weeks uh, now. And I'm sure it's going to be one of the biggest issues that um, legislators grapple with in the 2024 session. We've got to get to our first break right now. Um, When we come back, we're going to look at what's happening in Washington on Tia Mitchell's beat with efforts to do something about border security, a compromise that might lead to Republicans agreeing to new funding for Israel and possibly Ukraine. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our many newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com start. 
That's AJC.com slash start. So you'll always know what's really going on. I'm Bill Nygut, along with my colleague in Washington, Tia Mitchell, uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, and Republican consultant Brian Robinson, host of one of the hosts of Political Breakfast here on WABE, and a lot more than that. Thank you all for being here today. All right, Tia, uh, the House has already gone into recess, the U.S. House. They went home for Christmas without reaching a deal on two things, really, a border security compromise with the White House that could lead to uh, a vote that would give new funding for Israel and Ukraine. The Senate stayed in session. They met over the weekend to try to come up with some kind of compromise. But with the House out of session, it's clear it's not going to be till after the first of the year before anything happens on any of this, isn't it? Right. And what this is really all about is trying to find a path forward to getting money to Ukraine. Because um, President Zelensky was in Washington last week. He's really getting desperate. There's a lot of concern that if the United States does not give Ukraine additional funding, the country's not going to be able to keep things going in its war with Russia. So, in an effort to free up funding for Ukraine, or at least in an effort to find a way to get enough Republican votes to make funding for Ukraine happen, Democrats are starting to embrace conversations on border security, a completely different topic, so to speak, but one that Republicans um, have said they've gotta, we've got to address what's going on on our own soil, particularly at the southern border before we address what's happening on foreign land, which is why they've kind of been connected. And you're right, Bill, um, there were negotiations throughout the weekend. The Senate was supposed to be on recess this week, but Chuck Schumer says we're going to stay here in Washington. We're going to keep working. They are still talking, but no agreement has been reached. And it's really not clear if there will be an agreement because at the end of the day, senators will go home at some point this week and they won't be back until um, the beginning of January. Brian, um, this trend toward nationalism, in, in other words, not funding uh, Ukraine, not wanting to be engaged in the fight between Russia and Ukraine, it's been a growing trend in the Republican Party, I think it's safe to say. Certainly in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been one of the leaders of that nationalistic movement. But in a lot of ways, it really goes back to the time when Donald Trump was president of the United States and wanted to pull back from things like NATO, the United Nations, and the like. Um, but the question is, in the long run, although uh, being resistant to funding Ukraine uh, may play well to the base. What do you think it's going to do in terms of a general election issue? Well, Bill, I would I would recast us to some degree. Uh, nationalism is a word that just is loaded with a lot of other things. I, what you're seeing is a strain of isolationism ah. that 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 really goes back to the founding of the republic, not back to 2017. Yeah, that's always been there, and there's a there's an element of bipartisanship within uh, isolationism as well. So uh, this is this is nothing new. This has always been part of America and our our foreign policy. Uh, certainly, we, we didn't want to go to World War One. We didn't want to go into World War Two. Yet here we are. <laughs> you know, um, 
I personally am a strong supporter of defending the Ukrainians. I don't like spending money either. I am a fiscal conservative. I think we should watch every dime. But I would rather we fight Putin over there using their troops and not Americans uh, and using American planes and armaments and military know-how. That's the way that's best for Americans. That, to me, is the America first policy is to uh, fund Ukraine and let them take the fight to the Russians. What are the implications for a general election? I don't know that it is big, because right now, if you ask voters their number one concern, it's the economy, it's inflation. That That is first and foremost. If the economy is in great shape going into October of 2024, Joe Biden's going to be in good shape and Democrats might have a good year. If the economy or people's perceptions of it, at least, are the same as they are today, Joe Biden is going to get creamed and Republicans may pull off a miracle and hold the U.S. House and will win the U.S. Senate. So that is going to be the hinge on which this election swings, not Ukraine. Ukraine is just one of those, bo- you know, as I almost said boring but important, but it's, it's that's that's the wrong phraseology for it. This is a critical issue, not only nationally, but internationally. And we, America, as, as Churchill once said, uh, always does the right thing after it's exhausted all other possibilities. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and, by and the I way, think we'll do the right thing. Yeah, no, I, I actually think what you, your answer is absolutely correct. Ukraine is not going to be on the top of mind when people make their choice in uh, November of 2024. But on the other hand, Mary Margaret, uh, President Biden, in his efforts to appease, to some extent, Republicans who are looking for new border security measures right now, is getting a lot of blowback from uh, people who in many circumstances are going to be could be his voters in 2024 many hispanic leaders very upset with uh the president's conversations with republicans um he seems to be in a no-win situation there no-win situation is the rule of politics in many days of the week and the disaster and the pain and the focus on the border is extreme and it's a politically hot, hot. If people are thinking about what they what they care about in November 24, I agree that our economy in Georgia, particularly going well, and our economy going nationally, going well. Uh, border security is not going well. It's not. It's reality and perception down there, and we have not done anything effective. Neither Republicans nor we have not been effective in dealing with that issue. The simple example of not helping the dreamers is an example of failure that has failed in part because of a partisan usefulness of this issue. I'm very worried about the national posture right now. Uh, The experience and strength and reliability of NATO is at risk when, if you're talking to people really knowledgeable and thoughtfully about Ukraine. Obviously, the Middle East is a very scary, very emotionally draining, scary situation right now. I think that international issues are going to come back uh, in a more detailed way if we continue to fail to deliver our obligations to NATO, to Ukraine, to Israel, to the Middle East. I think we are 
in very dangerous times. Yeah, the, the, uh, what's interesting to me about this is Ukraine is one thing. Um, I mean, I, I certainly think that many, many Americans want to stop uh, Putin. But the, the, there's a big difference between Ukraine and Israel. The United States has always been, and members of Congress, the White House has always been ready to come to the defense of Israel historically. And the fact that right now new funding for Israel has um, been blocked, at least temporarily, is a little bit astonishing to me. Yeah, I I think you're right about the history. I think um, the Israel and United States partnership is being challenged because um, it used to be a perception almost we are allies, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. It's a given. It's not anything that we really um, reflect too much on. It's just it is who we are. It is what we have. And I think particularly on the left, and it's not recent, but I think um, October 7th and what has happened since have really elevated the fact that particularly on the left, there have been people who said, why do we just assume that this allyship with Israel is so strong that we don't question it and we don't evaluate it and we don't um, challenge Israel in those moments where we feel like the that nation's leaders haven't always uh, acted uh, with with the way that we would like them to act. For example, with the Netanyahu administration going further to the right, that's something that people have been uncomfortable with. But because Israel is such a strong ally, I would say our leaders were less vocal about it, but there had always been that discomfort Mm -hmm. on the left. Now, of course, everyone, well, I'll say most people will acknowledge that Hamas not only was the aggressor on October 7th, which is not a fact to be disputed, but I think most people say Israel had a right to respond, retaliate, defend itself. I think that's pretty agreed upon. But now there are disagreements as to at what point is this going past retaliation? At what point are we allowing the Israel government to commit war crimes? At what point is the Israel government going too far when it accidentally kills Israelis in friendly fire? At what point is the Israel government going too far when it's creating a humanitarian crisis in Gaza without letting the people, innocent civilians, um, move in ways that will allow them to avoid yeah. um, death and destruction? So, and and I think that's where the Israel-U.S. relationship may be forever changed because that is becoming not so much a vocal minority. These are loud voices. These are voices that are increasingly having leadership roles within particularly the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, quite frankly, with the isolationists. The progressives and the isolationists kind of are finding some 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 places of agreement when it comes to Israel. We should point out that Lloyd Austin is in Israel right now, uh, where his uh, main task, according to the news reporting that we've seen, is to talk to the Israeli government about finding more strategic ways to go after Hamas without indiscriminately uh, destroying 
civilian population, destroying civilian infrastructure and killing innocent civilians in uh, Gaza. So we'll watch how that unfolds. One quick note, we got to get to a break. We've mentioned this before, but uh, the last Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll asked people a question about Israel. Uh, The question was, do you believe uh, defending Israel is in the best interest of the United States? Um, 40% plus of the respondents said no. It's not. And that is a remarkable sea change, regardless of what government is in power uh, in Israel. Let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from our political team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. All right, Tia Mitchell, I want to do a quick... Uh, congratulations for you before we move on to other subjects, because I don't want to run out of time. Your your school, uh, FAMU, won the Celebration Bowl on Saturday. They beat Howard University. I know you were there. Congratulations. But also, Vice President Harris was there, and you caught up with her uh, after the game at some point. Yes, she, like many um, Atlantans will probably relate to this, had a craving for the Busy Bee, which is that historic soul food restaurant not far from the stadium. So immediately after the game, her motorcade sped on over to the Busy Bee and she picked up some sweet potato pie and um, some meals for herself and her family and her staff. And we talked to her. Um, the me- There was a few members of the media there and we asked her her message to Georgia voters. And she talked about how important Georgia was to allowing the Biden administration to carry out its agenda. So she said she wanted to thank the voters of Georgia. But then she saw me and um, she was like, you know, just saying, hey, we've been in rooms together, of course. And I told her, I was like, you know, I'm sorry your team didn't win. And she was like, no, 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 it's okay because this was a celebration of HBCUs, the the great thing was, of course, Howard was in the building. Of course, FAMU was really in the building. But you saw people Ooh. representing so many other HBCUs who were wearing their colors and their attire, too. Even Senator Warnock wore a Morehouse sweater <laughs> and he was there, you know. So it's like all these HBCUs were represented and it was a really festive environment. And she said that made it still a great day, even if her bison were defeated by the mighty Rattlers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should also say that she... Uh... Uh, took advantage of the opportunity to point out that the Biden administration has plowed billions of dollars into HBCUs, um, which I assume she out on the campaign trail hopes will be uh, a matter that uh, will uh, uh, attract black voters 
um, who some of whom are starting to wonder a little bit about the Biden administration. So um, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're uh, you're uh, Rattlers one to you. Congratulations. I wouldn't have been able to live it down if I came back to Washington and had to put up with those Howard graduates rubbing uh-huh. it in oh, face be awful. Time. I get you. Brian Robinson, so mm-hmm. on Friday, a federal jury returned a monetary verdict against Rudolph Giuliani. We know he's been in a federal trial. He's already, the judge had already in the trial uh, found him, uh, before we got to this portion of the trial, uh, guilty of defaming Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in in pretty uh, horrific ways, I think it's safe to say, a $148 million decision. Uh, what do you make of a, that kind of monetary punishment? Well, first, Bill, let me point out that I'm greatly disappointed I didn't get a chance to weigh in on the border Ukraine debate because oh, I didn't give it I, to you. Well, 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 no, just, just very quickly, Biden should say absolutely I'm for fixing the border. Come to the table, let's do it. I am one. He's terrified of his far left left flank on this wait, wait, issue. With, and, and in the and his yes. first day in the White House, President Biden proposed. Uh, a a uh, program to start fixing the border, and he couldn't no, get please. anywhere with this, it. Uh, this this all happened because when Trump was talking about you know building the wall, Democrats were saying walls are immoral, fences are immoral. You know they they sent this strong message to come one, come all, and boy did they hear it uh, south of the border, and we're paying the consequences for reckless rhetoric that was overly. Uh, yeah, look. I, y'all know I'm not overly partisan here, but th- this was, the Democrats have just flubbed this issue, and it is a, it is one that voters will vote on in addition to the economy. Democrats have got to improve their image on it, not that I really want them to, uh, going into 2024. On Rudy Giuliani, as we say in the South, uh, something ain't right with that guy. I mean, you know, there's he ain't right in the head, and there's been a, a mental decline that we have seen happen right before our eyes. We saw the the madness during the wake of the 2020 election where he was saying a bunch of crazy stuff, looking really <coughs> crazy. I mean, one of the most hilarious moments in American political history was when he thought he was having a news conference at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia, and it was at Four Seasons landscaping out in the burbs across the street from an adult entertainment store. It was just, None of this was particularly astute or well thought out. I think the stuff, a lot of the stuff that you saw coming out of him in 2020 was the ravings of someone who was is in middle decline. And that doesn't excuse what he said about the election workers who were wronged and who deserve to be compensated. Even Giuliani's lawyer acknowledges they deserve to be compensated. I'm disappointed that he is unrepentant, that he can't say I'm sorry, that he's saying I would do it again. That doesn't make sense when your lawyer is in the courtroom saying, yeah, they deserve compensation, but not this much. Right. The lawyer was trying to do a practical thread the needle move. And Giuliani's out there blowing it up. That's well, what was happening. Let, let, there. Let's here's just one of the things that Giuliani uh, told uh, the media after he came out of uh, court and learned how much money he was uh, going to have to pay. I am quite confident when this case gets before a fair tribunal, it'll be reversed so quickly, it'll make your head spin. Mary Margaret? 
You know, most of the talking head type people uh, in politics are very scripted and they're into message and they're into uh, a, a fairly sophisticated political argument. In this case, Giuliani versus Ruby and Shay, you had two of the women that gave the most compelling personal testimony that I've heard on the national scene in a long time. I mean, I'm in courtrooms, been in courtrooms my whole professional life. When you see somebody that authentically innocent, (laughs) authentic and innocent and talking about the reality of their life, I think the message that we should hear is that people like Giuliani do real harm, real injury. And the pain of what these two ladies, public servant, low, lowly compensated ladies had to endure is very significant. Giuliani is a train wreck. Um, it may be uh, mental illness. It may be uh, more traditional kind of alcohol abuse that the national media has written about a lot. He's a total train wreck, and the tribunal that's going to be listening to this is not the one reviewing the jury verdict, in my judgment. It's going to be the bankruptcy court. Uh, I've been in bankruptcy courts where folks have tried to avoid judgments, um, and that's where he's headed in a very, very sad end of what used to be. Uh, respectful. Well, yeah, and it, but by the way, I know there's been a lot of speculation about what's happening to Rudolph Giuliani, and I'd be quite frank in saying that it, and I don't want to d- diagnose him from afar, right. but clearly uh, he has gone off the rails in one way or another. Here's what Shea Moss said when she came out of the court on Friday. As we move forward and continue to seek justice, our greatest wish is that no one, no election worker or voter or school board member or anyone else ever experiences anything like what we went through. And yet, Tia, last Tuesday night when we had our Politically Georgia event at Manuel's Tavern, um, Brad Raffensperger, who was interviewed by Patricia and Greg, Um, pointed out that they are stepping up security measures of all kinds to protect election workers moving into the 2024 election uh, cycle. They're providing Narcam uh, to election offices, to polling places around uh, the state. They're going to have to take other measures. So, you know, Shea Moss's uh, wish is a beautiful one, but it we don't know what kind of trouble we could see as 2024 unfolds. Yeah, that's the, 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 the reality is there, the damage has been done after 2020. And yes, people like Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman um, filed their defamation lawsuits to try to send a message and perhaps cause people to think again about the things they say as we go into 2024 and beyond, but damage has already been done. There, there are countless election workers and elected officials who are deciding to not do it again, to leave. I mean, we just were talking about Congressman Drew Ferguson last week, deciding he was done with all the drama. Um, And so the concern is that the people with some sense to go back to, you know, uh, Representative Westmoreland gave us the yo-yos. Um, you know, the, the more you 
the more you turn off people who may disagree but are approaching the job with good faith, the more you leave room for people who may be coming for reasons that aren't always in good faith. And that's really the concern. Yeah. Uh, Brian, your former boss, uh, Congressman Westmoreland on the show last week, did talk about those extremists as yo-yos. It's the sort of phrase <laughs> that you would have given him if you'd had a chance to work with him. <laughs> Brian Robinson. Yeah, Lynn is a, is a is a wealth of of uh, sayings like that. Goat roping is one he uses yes, a lot as well. Yes, yes, I spent a lot of time covering him, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Brian Robinson, it was really a pleasure to have you here. I know you're going to rush off to uh, political breakfast with your pal Theron Johnson and Lisa Rayham. So thank you for spending time with us, Mary Margaret. I hope you are getting uh, really ready for this session. You know, eating right. Getting out there, doing the right exercises, it's going to be another a slog. Through. <laughs> it's going to be a slog, and it's going to be a slog through the federal court. But uh, go Rattlers. Go Rattlers. Good job. Yay. Tia Mitchell, <clears throat> you know how much I like having a chance to work with you on our show. So thank you for being here as well. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE weekdays at 10 or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app. Hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.